before Calvin and Grant were born, um, Brianna and I miscarried. And it was around Christmas time, and to make matters worse, it happened not long after we had just told all of our family um, in order to celebrate in our joy. And one of the things I remember really vividly from that time was the next Sunday. Um, it, I wasn't a pastor at the moment, so we were just attending, but I, I really remember it because I just went into that Sunday so weary. Um, I was desperate, tired, riddled with grief, confused, angry at God, and just showed up walking in the doors just really hoping that God would be there. Um, and what I remember is that's how I came in and then how the service began. Um, it started with a bit of a comedy routine, um, kind of on how to read your Bible. And I just remember sitting there laughing at the absurdity of it, um, kind of stunned and pretty unamused. And, uh, you know, I don't mean to disparage the, the church at all because they didn't mean anything cruel by it. But I was just struck by, okay, I'm, I'm coming here with real life. I'm coming here grappling with death, and I, I want to see God, and what do you have for me? You have this. Um, we're starting a new series today in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't really have any fun jokes for you. Okay, it doesn't have time for silliness, um, for absurdity, or for random doctrinal arguments that you want to get into. Um, it, it wants to talk to us about the reality as life, uh, life as it is. And it starts right away, and it tells us that everything is vanity and you're all going to die. That's how it begins in verse 2, and that's kind of how it's going to be for the rest of the book. Um, the problem with that book isn't just that, but this is a hard book to read. Um, Martin Luther called it the most difficult book in the Bible, and he said he didn't know anybody who had mastered it. Um, and he said that after he had tried to preach through it. Um, so I, I think a lot of the reason that, that this book is so difficult is because it makes us uncomfortable. Um, we don't like to, and nor do we want to think about death. We put that off as long as we can. And much of our culture, and even inside and outside of church, is set up to kind of deny the reality of death or to keep it at bay somewhere else where we don't have to think about it. But this book also is difficult for us because it's not always easy to see what does it have to do with Jesus? Well, what does this have to do with the gospel? But So this morning, what are we going to do? Um, well, we're going to talk a little bit about death. Um, well, a lot. I'm going to cover the first chapter here in Ecclesiastes if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Um, but I'm also hoping to kind of set up the book for you for these next several weeks um, so that you'll be ready as we dive into this to kind of understand where we're going. Um, I'm honestly a little nervous um, to get into this book. You know, maybe it'll end up being a total disaster and we'll punt and quit and read a different book instead. Um, so pray for me. Um, but the one thing I'll, I'll promise you is we're just going to wrestle with this. And we're going to wrestle with it, and I'm going to try and see, well, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with the gospel? Um, each week, we're going to try and answer that question. Um, so if you are able, um, would you stand with me as we read from Ecclesiastes and reread chapter 1? This is the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? Generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind on its circuits. The wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. 
What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there of which it is said, see, this is new. It's already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the earth. It's an unhappy business that God has given to children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all's vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us. Um, Lord, help us to, to grapple with this book. Everything inside these pages is your words. And you gave them to us. They have something to say about Jesus and they have something to say to us today. Lord, would you help us to see it? Not just to fill up our brain with more interesting facts about the Bible, but to fill up our hearts with a love for you. Teach us what this means and teach us how to obey it. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. Um, our first point, if you're taking notes in your blanks, and it's really kind of the main idea of the book, I think, is um, that we will all die and be forgotten. That we will all die and be forgotten. And I, I don't say this to be glib. Um, I'm not saying it to be cruel or to treat this as a joke. I'm as serious as I can be. This seems to be the point of these first 11 verses and really the point of much of the book of Ecclesiastes. It is the reminder that every single one of us will die one day as every single person who has ever come before us has. And every single person who's going to come after us will as well. There's a lot to unpack there. Let's just start in verse 1 and go through the chapter. It begins, you know, the words of the preacher... The son of David, the king of Jerusalem. Now, the name of the author isn't used here. We just get this title, preacher. Your translation may say teacher, collector. The Hebrew word is koheleth. It's just, so some just refer to the author by that title or by one of those. I don't want to spend a lot of time here um, disagreeing because there's some disagreement and debate over who this preacher is. The, the main option is that this book was written by Solomon, King David's actual son, the wisest man whoever lived, um, or the more popular opinion even among many strong Christians is we don't really know who wrote it, um, but they're emulating Solomon, or maybe Solomon wrote the first couple chapters and they're kind of adding additions to it. It's not that they're ghostwriting and they're trying to like pretend to be Solomon, um, but they collected these wise sayings and put it together. Maybe that's why they're named the collector. But really we don't have any, any idea. Um, I'm content to just say it's Solomon. I think it fits autobiographically, um, plus the early church fathers said it was Solomon. I don't like to disagree with them unless I have good biblical grounds, which I don't see any. Um, so throughout the series, I'll probably just refer to it as Solomon or the preacher. Um, and the preacher begins in verse 2 by telling us, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, kind of like arguing over who wrote specifically books of the Bible, uh, vanity. And this word vanity, it's going to pop up a lot over the next several weeks as we study this book. It's used about 35 times. Your translation may say meaningless, smoke, vapor, or my favorite in the NIT is uh, futile. It's all futile. 
Uh, verse 3 begins, and so he kind of stretches this out to, well, what is he thinking about? Well, what does man gain? All the toil by which he toils under the sun. What's the point? What's the result of everything we, we do in life? What do we gain from it materially? Well, somebody who spends their whole life building their own business dies, it's sold and stripped off for parts and changed the name. Years of effort you spend writing a book and it never gets read, ends up in a dumpster somewhere. Generations of family land just gets turned into a mall. Okay, we can be really impressed with our own toil, with our own hard work and how productive we've been and what we've built. Um, but the reality is it doesn't really result in much when looked at in the grand scheme of eternity from when time began. And this phrase, under the sun, right? So we gain all this. What do we gain under the sun? Some will take this to mean, well, under the sun is just looking at the secular life. This is just what life is like for non-Christians. So for non-Christians, it's vanity, vanity, and their toil comes to nothing. But for Christians, oh, it's much different for us. Now, I don't think we, I don't think we can just say that. Instead, what I think this phrase, under the sun, is meaning is I think it is looking at our broken world. What does our life look like, not just as individuals, but what does the world look like because of sin? How has sin shattered and broken and changed what the garden should have been? Because we're no longer in the Garden of Eden. In verse 4, he tells us, you know, a generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Um, whole generations just die and fade away. It's not just that all of us will die individually. It's that our whole generation, everybody around us, will pass away and be replaced. Generations will come after us that don't know the sacrifices you made. Generations who really won't care much about your generation or anything that you've done, and they're going to do their own thing, just like the generation before you did and before and then also after. And this leads to plenty of frustration and conflict among every generation. Each generation dies and fades, but the earth remains forever. It's kind of a poetic observation. You know, we fade, but the world just keeps on spinning. It doesn't stop just because you passed on. The earth's been here since God made it. It's seen thousands of generations. It may see thousands of more, and all of those people have just faded from memory for the most part. And he continues kind of on this metaphor in verse 5. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. Every morning the sun goes up. Every night, sun goes back down, and after it goes down, it heads back up again. It just, we just keep spinning around it. There hasn't been a morning the sun didn't rise. There hasn't been an evening the sun didn't set. Life goes on. Verse 6, he, he describes the wind as well. The wind blows to the south. It goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind on its circuits, as if it's just running its track. And then the wind returns. He's kind of describing the path that the wind seems to take. It blows here and there, blows everywhere, and it just keeps on going. You know, sometimes there might be hurricanes or tornadoes. Other times there's no wind, but there's always some wind somewhere just blowing. There's nothing you can do to stop the wind from blowing. Nothing you can do to make the wind start blowing, much as you might wish. It's, it just goes. It's as ceaseless as the rising and the setting sun. And he did seven, he continues and talks about the streams and water. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea isn't full. And to the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. So he's just talking about water and rushing waves. It's just another metaphor of unceasing activity, but nothing really changes. Massive rivers pour into the ocean all over. The oceans don't seem to get too full, and there's still rivers all over, just 
running. Water keeps going. Which makes them in verse 8 just go, man, all things are full of weariness. What does this matter? A man can't utter it. He's almost afraid to say it. Just talk about it honestly. Because it's embarrassing. Let's move and talk about something else. So verse 8, all things are weariness. A man can't utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. This seems kind of strange on the surface, but... I think what he's trying to say is that recognizing our death and the, the futileness of all of our toil, it can make us weary. We don't know how to talk about it, honestly. And the second half of it also acknowledged that our eyes and our ears, they're never satisfied on this side of eternity. Nothing we can see will last. There's nothing that you hear that's just so beautiful, you're like, okay, I'm good. I don't need my ears anymore. I've, I've heard enough. There's no, we always want more. Right? You read an amazing book, you watch an amazing show, you see something awesome, that you, and you want more. It's really good for maybe a couple moments or for a day, but then you want to go and find another one. Then when you go back to what you saw or seen before, it, it doesn't quite scratch that itch like it did the first time. Our hearts are never completely satisfied, no matter how long or how much we keep searching. Verse 9, what, what has been is what will be. What's been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Now, what he's not saying here is he's not saying nothing new has ever been invented, because if he's trying to say that, you could laugh. Think, well, no, it's so much different than your time, preacher or Solomon. Look at all the things. Just look around the room. All the stuff we have here that, that you didn't have. There's so much is new. But what he's trying to say is, yeah, everything's still basically the same. Okay, new inventions really promise you a lot. Oh my goodness, this thing will change everything. It will change the world. It will change your life. Look, come and buy this. Well, that sounds pretty similar to what somebody was yelling in a marketplace, you know, several thousands of years ago. Come buy my wares. It's from across the sea. It will change your life. Look at this. What he is saying is that none of that stuff, there's nothing new you can make that's going to satisfy your eyes. Satisfy your ears or satisfy your hearts. There's nothing you can find that's going to stop the inevitability of death as it comes. Right? Even we've made tons of advances in medicine, like when they discovered and realized, hey, washing your hands, that's a good thing. We should do that. Especially if you're going to be my doctor and work on me. You should wash your hands before you start cutting me up. Okay, that helps. So life expectancy has gone way up compared to when this was written, but it still doesn't make us last forever. Can't stop death. Verse 10, again, he says, you know, is there's such a thing where people say, oh, look, this is new. Well, it's already been in the ages before us. It, again, it doesn't mean we don't invent things. It just means our inventions don't change stuff as much as we wish that they did. Okay, all of our modern inventions in, in human history, they've made us more efficient. Okay, we're more efficient and productive now than we ever have been before. Yet if you talk to most people, they will tell you that they are always so, so busy with so many things. We think we're the busiest people in human history, even though people before us used to take them, you know, a week to do their laundry. But we're way busier now, even with all of our stuff. Our inventions haven't changed who we are as human beings. We're still broken, we're still sinful, and we're still gonna die, no matter how you pretty it up. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of the later things yet to be among those who come after. It reminds us we don't really remember the past. 
worse, it tells us that those who are going to come after us, who are really excited about the future, or excited about what's happening in space and exploration, look at all this stuff. Yeah, people aren't going to be very excited about that in the future either. They're going to think it's boring and forget about it. Because all the past that you wish people would remember, because it was so meaningful and exciting, well, it used to be really new and exciting at one point too, but it's just going to fade. All of us are going to be forgotten one day. Jesus tarries. Our, our name's going to be found in some dusty yearbook that nobody looks at. Wonders why it hasn't been tossed in the fire yet. Or maybe on a stone long forgotten in an old abandoned cemetery. The reality that we want to forget but that we really have to remember is all of us will die and be forgotten one day. I, I think a core part of my job as a pastor um, is to help us prepare for death and to die well as Christians. Because we're all just pilgrims. We're citizens of a different kingdom preparing for eternity. And this life is not all that there is. And those who don't know Jesus, they get distracted. They think this life is all that there is. They think this life is all that matters. They think that money or pleasure or work or fame, maybe even lots of wonderful family and friends is going to make their life matter and be significant and awesome. But all of it fades. It's vanity, vanity. It's striving after the wind. So what can we do? That, that sounds pretty depressing. Well, it's going to get a little more depressing before we get to Jesus. Our, our second point, he wants the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he wants to tell us what he tried. And so point number two is that wisdom can't stop death. Wisdom can't stop death. All the wisdom in the world, wisdom of the wisest people who have ever lived, all put together, they can't stop it. It's kind of the idea, not just for the second part of the chapter. I think it really will set our expectations for the rest of the book. Yeah, you don't think there's going to be some secret here in chapter 7 where the secret to life is found, and now it's going to give all your life much meaning. Over the next 12 chapters, he's going to talk a lot about life and everything he's tried and everything he's looked at and everything he's examined. But the problem is that human wisdom alone is completely insufficient. Verse 12, he begins and says, I, the preacher, I've been king over Israel. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. And it's an unhappy business God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, striving after the wind. It looks and all we do, it's nothing but dust in the wind. Everything we do is futile. It can't hold back the inevitable. Verse 15, he says, what's crooked can't be made straight. What's lacking can't be counted. He's just acknowledging, again, our inability to stop what's coming. It's unchangeable, it's unfixable by human hands. And the amount that's lacking is our human knowledge. Even with all the wisdom in the world, even with all more books being written every single day, can't stop. Verse 16, he said, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who ever Jerusalem before me. This is part of why I think this is Solomon. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. He's dedicated himself to figuring out this problem. The human conundrum. How can we make life meaningful? How can things not be vain? How can our toil not lead to nothing? He's read all the books he can find. He's sought out all the white sages. He's had more wisdom than anyone else. He's got nothing. He's got nothing for you. Verse 17, I applied my heart to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this too is driving after the wind. In this book, you know, we're going to watch his journey to solve our problem. He's going to try everything he can think of, and none of it is going to work. None of his solutions will satisfy. 
Verse 18, for in much wisdom there's much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. All this chasing wisdom has not brought Solomon peace. It actually paradoxically seems to have made things worse. The more that he's thought about the problem and tried to wrestle with it, he hasn't gotten closer to a solution. He's gotten even further away. The more knowledge he gains, the, the more vexation it, it makes. In part, this is kind of a warning for the rest of the book, too. Don't think it's like, okay, we're starting really bad, but chapter 2 is going to be a little happier. No, it's going to be kind of like this. Um, and then chapter 3 is also still going to be like this. And then the, so on and so on. Which is why it's a hard book and we don't like to read it. So he's warning you ahead of time. Hey, this, this search, it might just increase your sorrow a little bit. Now we, we can see this, right? We live what we call the information age. We've got more information than any time in human history. And you've got access to all that information at any time you want it if you've got a phone in your pocket. Okay, grab a computer or phone and you can learn just about anything you want. The answer to any of your questions can be found in a few seconds if you just know how to look for it. It's right there. But all that information hasn't really made us complete, has it? Hasn't made us much smarter. Hasn't led to world peace or utopia. Instead, it's just increased our, our sorrow. I think the internet gives us more information than is good for us. I don't think hearing everybody's opinion on the latest news event, I think that just increases our sorrow. Doesn't really make us happier. We learn about everything everywhere all the time. We got 24-7 news at every moment. So you can hear everything that's happened anywhere all over the world. Wherever something really horrible has happened, great. That can, we can entertain people for five minutes with that. And now you can know about it immediately. Something that you never would have been able to know about before. And yet your, our knowledge of all the suffering in, in the world, it's never been greater. And, and the internet and all this information has promised us great things. Well, it's good for all of us to know, look, it hasn't solved our problem. It hasn't made anything that much better in some ways. It's just increased our sorrow. It still leaves us empty. So that's, that's more of the bad news. We're all going to die. Nothing can stop it. Well, the question is, what do we do or who can? And this is, the answer is Jesus. Point number three in your bulletin is that Jesus defeated death. And Jesus remembers us. Jesus defeated death and remembers us. I don't know about you, but reading this book really makes me long for Jesus. Okay, reading this book makes me long for the gospel. And you cannot understand Ecclesiastes, I don't think, unless you get to Jesus. You really can't understand any book or any part of the Bible until you figure out how does this get to Jesus and what difference does Jesus make in all of this. I hope that our study of this book over these next several weeks will make us cry out and long for Jesus along with me. Um, we're going to probably study it all the way up until Advent and Christmas, and I think by that time we will all be ready for Jesus to come because we need him. Well, how does Jesus help us, or how does the coming of Jesus help us understand this chapter and book? Again, one of the many ways people try to approach this book and understand it is say, well, this is just looking at things under the sun. This is just what life is like for people who don't know Jesus, for non-Christians. And for us, it's much better and different. Well, it's partially true, right? But it's a little incomplete. Okay, because even as Christians, we still live under the sun right now, don't we? There's still a lot of the, the vanity of life and our toiling that leads to nothing that we have to endure. Still got to pay taxes. 
still got to work jobs to try and provide for our family. There's still so much of this foolishness. Solomon describes it's part of our life. Right? At the end, too, we're still going to die. and We're still going to be forgotten on this side under the sun by most people. Again, I think Ecclesiastes is trying to examine how life has been shattered by sin since Adam and Eve ate that fruit in the garden. So our hope, ultimately, is not that this life will be really different. Other people will have really depressing lives, but our lives will be awesome and exciting and we'll just always feel good and we'll never be depressed and we don't need depressing books because everything's great. Faith over fear. Jesus is amazing. No, our hope is different. Our hope is ultimately that Jesus has defeated death. That he won. Death hangs over the book of Ecclesiastes. And the reality that we're grappling with, and it's what bothers the preacher. That death is here and look at how much it ruins. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read it this morning as our call to worship. Paul calls death our enemy. And it's not just our enemy, it's the last enemy to be defeated. It's the foe that haunts our dreams and it's ruined the world, but we worship a God who conquered death. We were, the gospel is not just that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, though he did. The gospel is not just that Jesus offers eternal life and hope after death, though he does. The gospel is also that Jesus defeated death on the cross. And at the empty tomb. That Jesus took death's best punch. And he walked out of the tomb in victory. With his head held high and a smile. Through the death and the life of Jesus. We, we have hope. Christian you will die. But Christian you will live again. Death is your enemy. But it will not win. It cannot hold you in its grasp. And Jesus will come. And he will bring. Resurrection. At the cross, Jesus defeated the power of death, but the death still reigns in our world. But the death is like a lame duck ruler. It's like presidents that get voted out of office. And then there's that period between the election and before the next one comes. And you just counting, many just count down until that next one comes. But Jesus has voted death out. Jesus' eternal reign is going to come. It started at the cross. And when he comes again, death will be gone forever. It is the last enemy defeated, and it will be defeated, and it will be no more. And our hope is in the God of resurrection. And when Jesus died, I, the whole world, I think the whole earth itself recognized the victory that Jesus had won. It's one of the strangest passages in the Bible, describing it in Matthew 28. Right? It describes the moment of victory. When Jesus dies... The curtain of the temple is torn in two. Is what separates us from God is no longer there. But then the earth itself also shakes. There's a massive earthquake. And rocks just burst open. I don't know how that happens quite as an earthquake. But rocks do this. And then tombs are opened. And the bodies of saints come out of their graves and are resurrected. It says this in Matthew 28 if you haven't read this one. It's so bizarre and strange. For plenty of resurrection, there are plenty of sermons on those curtains being torn. I've not heard very many sermons on those uh, resurrections that come at the moment Jesus died. So what do we do with that? Well, part of what I, I think happened there is that that moment death's grip on the world was loosened. 
and the power of Christ's resurrection just burst forth. It was like the earth couldn't hold it in anymore. It had to celebrate. And that is our hope. Our hope is that our God did defeat death, and one day he will come and bring resurrection. There's plenty of li about life that's futile and vain, but there is a life to come. There is a better life awaiting those who have put their faith in Jesus, and we can get a taste of it now. It is not that we just sit around and we're hoping and everything now stinks, but it is knowing that what we experience now is just a pale shadow of what is to come. There's a, a worship song by a guy named Corey Asbury named Christ Be Magnified that I really love. It goes, I, I won't sing it, I'll read it for you. But he says, you know, if the cross brings transformation, then I'll be resurrected with you. Because death is just the doorway into resurrection life. And if I join you in the suffering, then I'll join you when you rise. And when you return in glory with all the angels and the saints... My heart will still be singing and my song will be the same. O Christ, be magnified. In Jesus, death is but a doorway to the hope of resurrection. So part of our gospel hope, it is this hope that Jesus defeated death, but the other portion is that Jesus will remember us, that we will not be forgotten by all. What do I mean by this? Well, part of the frustration, right, by Solomon or the preacher in Ecclesiastes is we're going to die and fade and be forgotten. No one will even remember us. Nobody remembers who wrote this. We sit around and we argue about it. But Jesus promises to remember you. Part of the truth of the gospel is that you have been adopted into God's family. And he knows your name. The thief on the cross, when he cried out to Jesus, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, yeah, today promise I'll be with you in paradise. I'll remember you. I'm not going to come up and say, hey, do you remember me, Jesus? And, oh, who, what's your name again? Let me, let me think. No, I'll remember you. Jesus will remember you, Christian. You are not just one of the nameless billions who has walked the globe. You are not simply a face in the crowd. You're not someone who Jesus will struggle to remember your name. You are known by God. Jesus loves you. Scripture tells us in Luke 12 that there's not a single sparrow that's ever lived that has been forgotten by God. He knows all the birds, sparrows. I don't, you know, all sparrows look the same to me. Kind of like birds, but they're not that exciting. But God knows every sparrow that's ever lived. They look the same to us, but not to God. And in that same passage, he reminds us that in Luke 12 that even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, you are worth more than many sparrows. If God remembers every single hair on your head, I think he can remember your name. He remembers who you are. He knows all the hairs on everyone's head who has ever lived. The world may forget you, but Jesus will not. Even if you forget yourself, Jesus will not forget you. Your life has meaning and significance because Jesus knows and Jesus loves you. What a wonderful Savior that we, we serve. So, I mean, what, what should we do? What's our response or application? You know, who, it, should it just be, well, who cares about life? Jesus will bring us back. He remembers us. That's a resurrection hope. I'm, I'm actually going to skip ahead. I'm going to spoil the end of Ecclesiastes for you. Um, I don't know if I'll do it every week, but I'll at least do it here so we know where this is going to go. Because I think these last two chapters, the last two verses in chapter 12, 
verses 13 and 14. They help us understand and make sense of the rest of the book. So chapter 12, 13 and 14, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. So after all the, you know, the depressing, vanity, vanity, we're all going to die. After all of that, what does he say? He says, Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. So what will last? What about all our toil is going to make it? What's worth doing in our life? Well, what's worth doing is living as if one day you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Because you will. You see, understanding the reality of resurrection, it changes our present reality. Because we live, will live again, this life does matter. Because there is a life to come, every single thing we do matters. And it matters not because anyone will remember it. They may forget it the moment that we do it. It matters because one day we will stand before Jesus and he will remember it. And he will note it. And it's all been recorded. So how should we, well, we should live obedient lives? We should live as if God sees everything that you do. Everything public and everything secret. Everything you do when no one's watching. Now, this is bad news for many. This is bad news for those who want to earn their salvation and think they can be good enough to pass the judgment seat of Jesus. He sees everything. You can't be. It's also bad for those who don't know Jesus because without grace, you are going to be judged harshly and justly. But if you have put your faith and your hope in Jesus, then he already took the punishment for you and he already paid your fine with his own body and his own blood. But the good news here for us is that everything we do obediently to God, He sees. It matters to Him and He notices. He will remember not just your name, He will remember every moment of obedience that you had. He will remember every time you gave to the poor, whether they deserved it or not. He will remember every time that you held your tongue, even when you really wanted to let them have it or say that thing. He will remember every time that you shared the love of Jesus and the hope of the gospel. He will remember. And when the God who defeated death returns, we will be rewarded by the God who loves us and who knows us. Summary, where have we been this morning? Well, talking about the reality that all of us are going to die and be forgotten and nothing in the world can stop that from happening except for Jesus. And he will, he has, he did, and one day when he comes, he will do so again. So with Jesus, we, can, we know we will live again, and so what we should do is we should put our hope in Christ and live with hope, even looking unflinchingly at the reality of what our life on this side of the sun can be. Let's bow our heads in prayer and invite our worship team to come up. Lord, I, I, I praise you that you are not a God who is scared of the reality of life. Lord, that our faith is not a weak faith. That Christianity is not just a, a religion for making life nice and happy and making it work. Lord, that through you and the cross, we can look straight at the reality of death and suffering. And we have an answer.
And we don't have to make it all pretty. We don't have to make everything awesome and great. But we just put our hope in you. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our faith. Lord, I pray that you would help us to put our hope not in this life, not in all of the things that will fade and will pass away, but that we would put our hope in the God who will stand forever and in the things that will last. And what will last is what we do for you. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us with our, with our study of this book in the weeks to come. Not make us depressed and sad, but would it encourage our faith and help us love you more. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't we stand as we worship our Savior once more through song. Amen. Here's this benediction from the end of number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. Go in peace.